We'll hear argument next in 04-473, Garcetti versus Ceballos. Ms. Lee. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. At its core, the First Amendment is about free and open debate on matters of public importance. It's about citizens' rights to participate in public debate and contribute their personal opinions and views, whether they are mainstream or not. The First Amendment is not, however, about policing the workplace. It is not about constitutionalizing the law of public employment, nor should it be. Yet, if the Ninth Circuit's approach is accepted or adopted, this is what it will do. In this Section 1983 action, a deputy district attorney prepared a disposition memorandum pursuant to his prosecutorial duties, setting forth the reasons why, in his prosecutorial judgment, the criminal case that he was supervising was likely to be dismissed. The fact that the supervisor did not agree with the content of that memorandum should not give the plaintiff a constitutional right to challenge adverse employment decisions that he claims were in response to the product of that memorandum. There are no First Amendment interests that are served when public employees are allowed to perform assigned job duties in such a way as to the disagreement of the public employer. Essentially, what the the Ninth Circuit — I suppose the public might have an interest in knowing about this debate. I I don't know if you can say there are no public interests served. It might be that there are other counterbalancing first interests, but I I don't think you say we have no interest in in speech. This was — this is a — on its face, a rather interesting, a rather interesting argument that they're that they're having. When they're interested in criminal law, criminal procedure, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's our position that when speech by public employees cannot fairly be said to be speech as a citizen, then the government should have a presumptive right to manage its personnel affairs and internal. Well, th- yeah, that's something different. But your statement that there's just no First Amendment interest. Well, there's no core First Amendment values that are furthered when public employers have to justify employment decisions that um, uh, uh, that they make on a routine basis. Well, why wasn't that equally true in Connick? Well, the difference in Connick is that the uh, uh, the employee, the prosecutor in that actions, spoke more closely with um, a citizen. And the government no, but, I mean, has that's, that's, that's a fine characterization, but I, I'm not sure that that helps us. In, in Connick, the, the one subject of the speech that was held to be protected uh, was the speech questioning political pressure to, to help in campaigns and so on. Uh, the, the issue here that would arguably uh, favor protection uh, is the issue of calling public attention uh, to to, to lying by, by police officers in criminal cases. And uh, it seems to me that the, the, if there's a public interest uh, in, in political pressure, there's a public interest in mendacity in law enforcement. Well, if the employee is required to investigate or report that kind of conduct pursuant to their normal duties of employment, then that is speech that the employer should absolutely or presumptively have an ability to monitor. No, but that's the difference, we, not not the lack of public interest. You, that's the absolutely right. What reporting to is that in one case, 
he is making this statement as an employee, and you say the employer, if it's a stupid statement, ought to be able to fire him for it. In That's the other correct. case, he's making the statement as, as a member of the public, and what the First Amendment is, is all about is that we allow stupid statements to be made. If it's not part of your core job duties that, you, that employers should evaluate. No, but it, it may well. I guess the, 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 the point that I'm trying to get at, and it goes back to your original public interest issue, is let's assume, as, as Justice Scalia's uh, hypo had it, let's assume that the statement made by the employee on the subject within job duties, case like this one, is, in fact, a, a stupid statement. Let's assume it's wrong, it's inaccurate, whatnot. The, the issue uh, is, is not whether an employer, it seems to me, should, if that turns out to be the case, be able to fire. The issue, it seems to me, is whether, if it is not stupid, it should be totally unprotected so that the employer could do anything, even if it's an accurate statement. And my understanding is that your argument on public interest was an argument that says, even if it's accurate, and they were lying and so on, uh, that there should be no protection. And do I understand you correctly? Well, our position is whether or not the prosecutor, in this case, made an accurate statement during the performance of his job. So, in other words, if his disposition memorandum, um, if the employer accepted it and agreed with it and the case didn't go any further, um, there wouldn't be a basis of First Amendment because normally he is acting pursuant to his job duties and um, it's up to the employer to evaluate whether or not he's adequately performing those sure, job duties. Sure, but take, take the case in, in, in which the, the employee says uh, it was accurate, the employer says, no, it was stupid, you, you got everything wrong. Uh, I take it in your position is that regardless of whether the employee got it right or not, there shouldn't be protection because it's within job duties. Is right. That it should correct? not be protected under the First Amendment. Okay. That's not to say that the public employer um, is free from being challenged with regards to the employment decision. It may be a matter for the employee to seek through the grievance procedure that, like Mr. Ceballos did initially, or even pursue it to civil service remedies. And those are the type of decisions that the personnel in those uh, departments are more ably, um, I think, to, uh, uh, to decide. Or he could go public, I assume. He could say, I got fired for saying this and this was true, right? Take it to the press. The press would love it. If his job is not, if, if that speech was not required uh, to be kept uh, Assuming it internally. wasn't required to be kept but if, he, if it's part of his job to speak publicly, then he has no things that are said publicly in the performance of official responsibilities have no First Amendment protection? In our view, no. If it's a job, if the public employee's assigned job duties is to, uh, on behalf of the government or the employer, speak to the public about certain things that are going on in the office uh, and he happens to get um, disciplined for it, that wouldn't pass um, — our step. So what if the employer tells the employee to go out and lie? There's no First Amendment protection if the employee instead tells the truth? Well, I don't know if that's a, uh, um, if that's a detailed enough hypothetical. I mean, if the employee's core job duties are to report X, Y, and Z, and that employee goes out to the public and reports X, Y, Z, E, and F, 
Um, well, no, that's, I think not, that's, that's, not, that's not the hypothetical. Suppose uh, that a uh, supervising district attorney tells the deputy district attorney, go in and make a misrepresentation to the court or conceal evidence or whatever. Well, the question would be if, if he's — And he refuses to do that, or, 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 or he goes in and he says the opposite, he tells the truth, and he's fired. What result? Well, I think the, uh, the plaintiff could argue that that's not my core job duties. My job duties is to, um, if it's a prosecutor, is to make statements pursuant oh, so, to — Oh, so you're, you're, you're saying that there's, there's an exception to your rules, so that if in this case uh, he, has a, he has a defense, if he says, well, well, it's my duty to call it as I see it. Absolutely and, not. Well, then, then if, if that's so, you ought to remand this case. Well, sure, you'd, you'd agree with that. If it's his duty to call it, just as it's the duty of a, uh, of, of a lawyer not to lie to the court, if there was a similarly uh, clear legal duty for him to say something, you'd say that was part of his job, do, job description. Wouldn't? That would be the required assignment of his job. And, 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 and I suppose in this case, in the hypothetical we propose, uh, that the California courts and the California bar would have disciplinary mechanisms against the senior attorney who hypothetically told the junior attorney to mislead. Well, that would be an issue of fact. Does California have or have not disciplinary procedures in the hypothetical case where a senior attorney who tells a junior attorney to lie to the they court? They do. All right. What, what is it? What is the California remedy. Let's say his boss says, um, don't turn over Brady materials. And the employer goes ahead and turns it over? Yes. If the uh, boss makes a determination that this is not Brady materials, I don't want that disclosed, and the employee goes ahead and discloses it, our um, position is that would not be protected First Amendment speech. What, a, what about you? You were talking about public speaking. There was, as I remember, a talk that was given to the Mexican American Bar Association, and that was not something that his employer required him to do. But no, it wasn't, and it's not part of this lawsuit because there's no dispute that the communication at issue in this case is that disposition memorandum that he prepared purely pursuant to his prosecutorial duties. But would he have a 1983 case if, if he were uh, disciplined or disadvantaged in the workplace because of the talk that he gave to the Mexican-American Bar Association in which he criticized DA office policies? Then our position is it gets past step one because it's not normally something that the prosecutor is required to do, and it would be subject to a balancing. Pickering balancing, I take it. Correct. But I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, just a matter of fact, I thought his 1983 claim listed the speech to the Mexican-American Bar Association as one of the reasons that he was uh, demoted or whatever it was, transferred. It was initially um, alleged, but through the course of discovery, um, the focus of it was a disposition memorandum because by the time he went to the Mexican-American Bar Association, he'd already been disciplined. So there's no causation between his public speech to the Mexican Bar Association and um, the uh, disciplinary actions. Well, the, that were the focus may have changed, but I mean, he hadn't dropped the 
He didn't drop the claim that that was one of the causes well, of the — Well, in essence, he did when we — Did he? — when we went to the summary judgment motion. And that's why the district court was very clear that uh, the, the issue oh. in this case was a communication in the um, disposition memorandum, and that was — it was undisputed that that was purely pursuant to his prosecutorial duties. The Court, the court of Appeals okay. did — the Court of Appeals specifically did not address the Mexican-American Bar Association speech. It focused only on the memorandum, correct? Correct. And you correct. can see that's Pickering balancing anyway. Well, in — to the extent that he's alleging that if that's — I went to the Mexican-American Bar Association and I — Allege, or I made statements that there were some improprieties in the district attorney's office. Um, that would probably get past step one and the matter of public concern. And then the question would be whether or not his interest in speaking as a citizen outweighed the interests of the government. But, but let me let me raise this question: If if in this case he gets past step one because of the Mexican Bar Association speech. And if, as, as you suggested in answer to a question a little while ago, that anybody could go public uh, and get at least past step one of Pickering, what is to be gained by the, the extremely, well, strike the extremely, what is to be gained by the restrictive view that you take, uh, that if, if he doesn't go to the Bar Association or doesn't go public, there's no protection at all. In other words, it, it seems to me that the public is being protected in a way subject to an immediate end run. Well, I, I think um, what Your Honor is really asking is if the um, uh, plaintiff in this case had taken his disposition memorandum and rather than give it to a supervisor, which would he, what he was required to do, he went to the public and gave it to them on a pending case, I don't necessarily think that would be protected under Pickering as well. But what if he simply goes to the public and, and says, look, uh, there's Brady material here, uh, and it should be turned over, and instead uh, my boss is telling me to suppress it. That wouldn't be turning over his work product. Uh, and uh, I, I took it from what you said earlier that in that case you would say at least he gets past step one of Pickering for the newspaper. Well, he certainly wouldn't be um, speaking in his capacity as a prosecutor, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his interests would be outweighed by the employer's interest. Um, oh, he might, he might ultimately lose just the way on, on all issues but one, the employee in Connick loss. That's, that's, that's quite true. But at least there would be a claim to go through the balance. Well, of the in, in some respects, um, if you're talking about job requires speech, that you are um, part of those duties and the function is to uh, keep it internally until at least there's some uh, decision by the supervisor. And rather than do that, you send it to uh, the press or leak that information out, I think a governmental disruption and efficiency uh, can be presumed there. So I don't think it's as, um, um, uh, I don't think it's as clear that that, that Mr. Ceballos would have um, ultimately prevailed under the balancing. I mean, if, if he had taken the, yeah. the, the, the speech externally, I think there that he ultimately would have lost as well. well I understand you. You're not saying he would win on Pickering balancing, but he would at least get to the point of going through the balancing exercise. And ultimately the result would be there's no protected Maybe. First Amendment speech. Yeah. How do you go about determining whether something falls within somebody's job duties? How specifically does that have to be set out? If it's a function of 
the person's job, assigned job duties. So the, you look at the speech at issue, and here is, it's a uh, disposition memorandum that was purely pursuant to what the, what his duties required. Um, he's, it's normally a function that the employer would take into consideration for things like promotion or demotion. At, you have to look at a job description. It doesn't have to be listed specifically in a job description. <clears throat> Could there ever be things that it's understood that uh, are things that any employee ought to be concerned about, such as very serious wrongdoing within, within the office? I mean, there could be uh, situations where there's a general code of conduct by all employees, um, you know, employees who feel that they've been, you know, um, harassed, sexually harassed, or feel that others are, should report that. But that may not be that person's um, assigned job duties. In other words, that person is not assigned to investigate and report those type of things. Of course, and if, if you adopt the principle that every employee ought to, ought to uh, report to his superiors known wrongdoing by, by his uh, co-workers and that that's part of his job duties, you, then, then you, you always cut off the ability of that uh, employee to go public, right? I mean, uh, it's, a, it's sort of an expanding category. Job um, duties. Well, it would be assigned job duties, things that normally the employer would take into consideration for things like terminating or promoting. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Ms. Lee. Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Much of the work of public employees is performed by speaking or writing, and much of that work concerns matters of public interest. Under the Ninth Circuit's decision, public employees engaged in such work have at least a presumptive First Amendment right to perform their jobs as they see fit. That conclusion rests on a fundamentally uh, mistaken view of the First Amendment. When the government pays for somebody to do its work, it has an absolute right to control and direct the manner in which that work is performed. That is a basic rule of agency law, and insofar as federal employees are concerned, it's a basic rule of our constitutional structure. Article 2 of the Constitution gives the President the power and responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Effectuation of that power and effectuation of the principle of accountability that, imbo- that it embodies requires that supervisors in the executive branch be able to control and direct the work of their subordinates. The First Amendment, which was adopted just a few years after the Constitution, was not meant to interpose the First Amendment in that relationship between supervisor and subordinate, or otherwise to regulate the internal affairs of the executive branch. That is the function of civil service laws adopted by the legislature and internal executive branch directives taking into account the relative costs and benefits of certain types of regulation. And finally, you, you take the position, then, that going to the earlier hypothetical that somebody brought up, that, say, in, in a Brady case, if, if the, uh, uh, if the uh, federal prosecutor believes there was Brady material, that, and let's assume he's correct, just to make it a simple case, that there's Brady material to be turned over, and the U.S. attorney says, do not turn the Brady material over, uh, that if the, uh, if the U.S., if the, if the prosecutor uh, tells this to a court that he can be disciplined? Well, uh, there, there would no doubt be other restrictions 
Justice Kennedy mentioned uh, ethical rules under the federal uh, whistleblower statute. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm there, sure there that's would be so. But what, a, what about you know the, the the basic First Amendment? The First Amendment would not be this would not be the source of, of protection. Whether there would be some argument that if the employee could not be fired, it would be an unconstitutional condition to require him to put his job at peril for committing a due process violation or something like that, whether there would be a claim like that, that would be a different matter. But the First Amendment — Why why would you recognize a due process violation if you wouldn't recognize a First Amendment? Because the First Amendment does not address speech that an employee undertakes in the performance of his duties. Well, neither does due process. No, no. I I was just suggesting it would have to be some unconstitutional condition. The the due process — If you get to the unconstitutional condition, wouldn't you normally look to the First Amendment? My my point is that the due process process clause does address the conduct at question, which is the requirement that that exculpatory material be turned over to the defendant. And so the, the, the question is that the employee would be put in a position where he would, where he would be instructed not to perform what he understood to be a constitutional violation. I think most civil service laws, most, most ethical rules would take care of it. And as I mentioned, the Federal Whistleblower Statute in 2302B9, I think it is, has a, a provision that protects employees who refuse to obey Perhaps 1983, if you go the unconstitutional condition argument, and certainly in 1983, or, or uh, are you be a civil rights prosecution against the senior who ordered? Yeah, there, there would be there would be those sorts of restrictions. My only point is that the First Amendment is not addressed to to speech or writing that an employee undertakes in the in the uh, in the course of his official duties. But isn't there this um, <clears throat> isn't there this anomaly in the position that you're advocating? It would seem to me that categories of employee speech that are most likely to be disruptive would be. Uh, public speech that's outside of the employee's duties or internal speech that is outside of the employee's duties. How much of a, of a problem is it uh, that employees are bringing First Amendment claims based on largely internal speech that falls within their own job duties? I think that would be a huge problem because it would effectively constitutionalize the day-to-day interactions between supervisors and subordinates uh, within the government and uh, put the federal courts in charge of overseeing that. Uh, even if these cases might ultimately be disposed of on summary judgment, there would be discovery, there would be the burdens of the litigation. And in a case like this, where, where the, where the uh, government is taking the position that the, these actions were not even taken against the employee because of this disposition memorandum. They say they had perfectly valid other reasons. But, but this case exemplifies what the problem would be, is that the employee could identify something that he said or did in the course of his duties that involves speech and say, that's the reason that I was disciplined. Are these going to be difficult cases under, under Pickering balancing? You see, you have the case like this where the employee, let's say, says to the prosecutor, I think the case should be dismissed. The prosecutor says, well, I'm the supervisor and I disagree. We're not going to dismiss the case. Uh, typically, the, the employee wouldn't be disciplined for doing something like that. Now, if the employee persists and, and you know, is insubordinate, there would be another basis for taking disciplinary action. Well, uh, but in this case, if we look at what the Ninth Circuit said, for example, when it got to step two, it said that the employee could only be disciplined if the, if the agency could show that there was disruption or, or reckless disregard for the truth. But when somebody is actually 
carrying out his job duties, not engaged in outside activities that may reflect back and be disruptive, but engaged in the job duties themselves, the employer has a right to insist on more than that the employee not be disruptive or reckless. He has a right to insist that the, the employer has a right to insist that the employee affirmatively contribute to the work of the office uh, and to exercise good judgment. And the, and the supervisor has to be in a position to make judgments about whether that judgment was good or not. Is this going to lead to difficult problems in determining what falls within the, the job duties of a particular employee. I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it will, and certainly no more problems than the, than this court has wrestled with, and lower courts have in terms of what's a matter of public concern. I think it's a common inquiry to determine what a person's job duties uh, are, and I think it's it's a very important place to have a clear line, just as there is a clear line with respect to matters of public concern. Well, suppose in the memo here, the the. Um the assistant district attorney had said, um, I think that this deputy lied, and I think the deputy should be fired. Uh, now, whether the deputy should be fired or not probably isn't within the job duties of this, uh, of this employee. So would that be outside of your rule? No, I think it would probably be inside the rule. I think, I think uh, t- uh, particularly for a for an assistant DA to make a recommendation about the consequences of illegal conduct would be within his within his job duties. Um, I also want to say that, that this Court's decision in Pickering and in that line of cases, I think, fully support this, because as this Court pointed out in Connick, uh, this Court has repeatedly stated that the protection afforded by Pickering is for action taken uh, uh, as a citizen on matters of public concern. That as a citizen phrase was reiterated in virtually all of this Court's cases in the area. And the underlying principle is but that — Does it, the Gavon case fall within that? Yes, yes it does. But all the Court addressed in Gavon was, was the question of whether if you take your concerns not publicly to the newspaper but express them to the — in that case, the principle — uh, that you don't lose First Amendment protection, but the Court did not address the question of whether those uh, comments were within the scope of the employee's duties. And I think a reading of the lower court's decision in Gabon indicates that they were not. She was an English teacher, and she was commenting to the principal about employment practices at the school. That would not have been within the scope of her uh, employment. But if she was the, the vice principal, that would be — then it would come with uh, it, it, it might be it might be closer to that yes i think again it would depend if she was if she was vice principal for administration or something i think i think it it, it clearly would um, but uh, the the purpose of the pickering line of cases is to protect employees when they go outside of their of their job that they shouldn't be penalized for having taken a job to be able to participate in public affairs as the court put it in pickering that does not suggest that the, that the employee brings the first amendment into the job workplace and can use it as a shield or a sword in the day-to-day interactions uh, with uh, with his supervisors, and to do so would constitutionalize, as I said, the day-to-day operations uh, of employment. And, and this is a classic example where somebody wrote a disposition memorandum uh, in the course of in You're the course suggesting of that a, a remark made internally could not provide the basis for discipline, but saying exactly the same thing publicly could, I mean, or vice versa. Well, if it's made publicly in the capacity as a citizen, assuming the public — it isn't a speech that he's making in the course of his duties. If he 
writes something to the press, he's speaking in his capacity as a citizen. That doesn't mean that it would be constitutionally protected. It simply means that you get to step two of the Pickering balancing because he's not well, carrying out the assuming a case duties. in which it would be constitutionally protected. But you're saying if he says it publicly, assuming we pass the balancing test, but if he said the same thing to his boss directly and internally, no protection. No, at least not if it's part of his job duties, and I would think Which ordinarily in that. would sort of uh, encourage people to go public rather than exhaust no, I mean, their internal remedy. Two things about that. When he's saying it internally, he's doing his job. When he's going externally, he may be violating office, office policies. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Ms. Robin Vergeer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioners contend that the First Amendment provides no protection when the government silences or punishes a public employee for speaking up on a matter of vital public importance in the course of performing his job, even if the government has no legitimate employment reason for doing so. Such a sweeping rule would stifle speech that lies at the very core of the First Amendment. Recognizing Richard Tobias's claim in this case would not convert every public employment dispute into a constitutional case. I think it's probably a bit much to say that the core of the First Amendment is internal employee grievances or speech. And I think the concern concern on the other side is that uh, you may, as a lawyer, you may have a a view of what what Brady requires. Your superior may have a different view. And just because that disagreement uh, exists doesn't mean that you have a constitutional right to continue to voice your view when your superior has reached a different decision. I agree with that. Um, the First Amendment doesn't bar the government from disciplining employee, employees for insubordination or poor job performance or for continuing or persisting in a matter once their supervisors told them to stop. Where an adverse employment action is motivated by such legitimate employment reasons, there's no First Amendment violation. But, but the petitioners here have not claimed any legitimate interest in punishing Ceballos for what he said, nor have they made well, the they're, case. Well, the interest they claim is that of supervising their employees. That is not correct. In this case, the I mean, petitioners... I mean, that's, that's the interest that we're, we're concerned with, is, is, is of having the government... Um, have the capacity to be able to control the speech of its employees so they can have a consistent policy and so that it can explain to the people what it's doing. They've articulated that as an abstract principle that has no application on the facts of this case, because on the facts of Sorry. Go on. I'll let, on the facts of this case, they never claim that Tobias did anything improper, that he exercised poor judgment, that he was insubordinate. They just said we didn't retaliate. That was their defense of this case, and that presents a fact question for the jury. But, but you're the one that's asking us to adopt a rule, and I'm suggesting to you that there is an interest that's sacrificed by the rule that you, that you request, and that is the government's interest in regularity and, and, and consistency of its speech. They don't have to claim it on a case-by-case basis. You're the one that's asking us to make this rule. Uh, with respect, I disagree with the characterization because, well, there are three reasons why petitioners propose per se rule, which would be unwise. And it's they who are asking for a per se exclusion where the court has not 
previously adopted a per se exclusion. And the reason why it's unwise is that it will chill speech of paramount public importance by prosecutors and many other public employees. It will force many public employees to go public if they want any chance at constitutional protection, and it will lead to arbitrary and unworkable line drawing regarding whether an employee speech well, falls within his because job. Because public duties. employee unions are so weak, they're the only strong unions left in the country. I mean, really, you you, you need the Constitution to protect uh, employees uh, against things of this sort. Absolutely. The Court has recognized in Pickering and in other cases that the threat of dismissal from public employment is a potent means of inhibiting speech. Public employees who speak up within their workplaces about police brutality, falsification of evidence, disaster preparedness, and so on, should not be compelled to shade the reports and the recommendations and tell their superiors only what they want to hear or else face reprisal for their campaign. Neither, neither should a superior uh, be uh, — required to get a report from a subordinate that he thinks is way off base, just a result of poor judgment, thinking that there, that there was a, a violation here when there, when there obviously wasn't, or using, using facts that were not sufficiently established in order to claim such a violation, surely the, uh, the uh, employer is entitled to say, on the basis of this report which you gave me, you're fired. That's absolutely, or, you know, or, that's absolutely correct. And if in this case that judgment had been made by Sabias' employer that he'd exercised poor judgment, that he was rash or reckless in his conclusions, then the employer would have had a valid basis for taking an adverse employment action against him. But that is not what happened in oh, this case. But you're case. just hiding behind the fact that they claim that it wasn't in retaliation. Your assertion still puts them in the position of having to uh, uh, defend a constitutional claim on a case-by-case basis every time there's a disagreement between a subordinate and a superior about, as in this case, what what Brady requires. Well, actually, the the disagreement — there wasn't any disagreement. He came forward and exposed police misconduct, and his supervisors were on his side. There was a disagreement about whether or not his memorandum accurately reflected uh, uh, in an appropriate way what was at issue there. there. There was a disagreement about the content of the allegations. I don't think it's important for maybe the purposes of this to, to iron this out, but I respectfully I don't agree with that characterization because even in the resolution of the grievance internally, the, what they found in the grievance was that they took no adverse action against him because of what he said in connection with the case. That is the point. I think the point is, at least, I think the point is, who is going to decide whether there was some justification here? And I read this memo. I thought that uh, uh, the DA had a pretty good claim, that the police didn't do anything wrong. And there's also an argument they did. All right. So who decides that kind of thing? A constitutional court or a state under its protection laws or whistleblower statutes? And the argument that you have to face, I think, is that it will be very disruptive to have constitutional judges dive into this when there are so many other remedies and where the very act of their doing it, allowing discovery, allowing court cases, allowing juries itself, will disrupt the government. Now, if you say they give you no protection at all, I want to hear what you have to say as to what the standard is to separate the sheep from the goats. Okay. There are a few points embedded in the question. I'd like to take them one by one. With respect to the standard, the standard is if the employer makes a judgment that the public employee has not performed his or her job properly or has been insubordinate, 
so long as that judgment isn't based on a sensorial-type motive, like we don't tolerate criticism of the sheriff's department, something like that, then the employer's judgment prevails. And I'm not suggesting that a district, federal district court has a license to second-guess that judgment, so long as that judgment's actually the judgment that was made. I mean, there's a pretext analysis that might be made in, in this case. And the only cases that would go into court are cases where the employer says, I have no reason at all for firing him? Oh, it, in a case like this, the county never came forward. But and that's said because that they think they have a better claim on the other part. I mean, uh, if, if, if even if you're right in this one, I promise you the next one will come along and they'll say, of course, we had a good reason for firing him. One, we didn't fire him for that reason. Two, if we did, we would have been justified or whatever. So if but your standard is the only cases that go into court under the First Amendment are cases where the employer says, I had no basis for doing anything to him whatsoever, then I think there will be few such cases that you might convince me that that standard well, wouldn't do any harm. That's why I said that it would be subject to a pretext analysis. The employer, of course, might come back and, and, and post hoc come up with a rationale for why they did always what they be did. the claim. That'll always be the claim. They'll always say, oh, yeah, you said you did because of that, but you did it because you're retaliating for you know, this or that. I mean, when we're not operating in uncharted territory here. The rule that the Ninth Circuit has adopted has been the prevailing rule in the circuits for years. And, and I just want to clarify something that came up in the last argument where I cited some very rough statistics about the numbers of cases. There's a, a rough a rough cut at the universe of public employee free speech cases, of which this type of case for the speech as part of the job is only a tiny subset. These cases are not dominating the courts, and you don't have all the litigation that is being is that claimed would they're occur. Addressed, is it, and they're addressed under state and federal whistleblower laws, or? No, that actually gets me back to the second part of Justice Breyer's question, which is protection. And it's a complete hit or miss situation across the country. And just to respond to something that was said about the Federal Whistleblower Protection Act, that statute has a gaping hole in it as construed by the Federal Circuit, because the Federal Circuit has construed it to exclude protection for speech that is part of the employee's normal duties. So in any case that would come up with a Federal employee, leaving aside what judicial remedies are even available for a Federal employee in this area, um, the Federal employee would be largely unprotected by the Federal whistleblower statute. And with respect to what the state of the law is across the country, it's complete patchwork. Different types of speech are protected. There's huge holes in coverage. There what is no — California, which was the state where this episode occurred, was — I think you, you mentioned that, that he did not make a claim under the state statute. That's correct. And it's sort of interesting that — Neither the petitioners, the United States, or any, any of the amici have cited a California whistleblower statute that would have been applicable to this claim. I frankly think that there was one that potentially might have been applicable, not cited by any of the parties, but the law was in flux and it really wasn't all that clear. And that's — and California is probably one of the better states in terms of whistleblower protections compared to — and we're talking about a local government employee and the odds of protection is just hit or miss across the country. The, are you saying that California courts would tolerate a situation where a member of the bar told one of uh, his employees to misrepresent to the court? Referring back to hypothetical. The California courts are certainly not parliament. And, in fact, this case was heard by a California court, and the, and the judge, as I read the records, not altogether clear, uh, 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 seemed seem to agree with the, uh, with the police officers. 
The motion to traverse that was heard by, by a state court judge was not run, that hearing was not run by Sabias. It was run by the defense lawyers in that case, and Sabias's testimony was limited by the prosecution's own object, objection. So you can't judge anything from how that disposition came out, whether the state court judge thought it was the police had lied or not lied. And you can't judge anything by the way that hearing was conducted. But I want to return to why it's so important that the court not shrink First Amendment activity in the workplace. It is of the utmost importance that public employees who internally report matters of public concern enjoy First Amendment protection, and for two basic reasons. First, the public needs to have a government of public servants who do their jobs honestly and with integrity and not yes-men afraid to tell public officials the bad news. A per se exclusion of First Amendment protection creates a powerful disincentive for deliberation within government. The last time I cited an example of a FEMA employee who was punished for saying to a supervisor that FEMA wasn't ready to handle the next hurricane. But the facts of this case are just as compelling. Denying a First Amendment protection for prosecutors who expose police misconduct. And his disposition memo wasn't just a prediction about whether how a judge would rule on a motion. He exposed police misconduct. And it was so — That's not — that's not established. That's not established at all. His supervisor obviously thought he didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to suggest that the the truth of that allegation may be open to question, but what is not open to question — It's a very serious allegation for somebody who's who's in the position that this employee was to make against police officers. And as I understood the case, the the, the supervisor said, wow, I don't I don't want loose cannons around down there who are accusing perfectly honest and respectable police officers of violating the law. Now, that hasn't been proven either, but but, right. but but that is certainly a possibility, and I do not want to exclude the ability of a supervisor to fire somebody if that possibility exists without having to go through extensive litigation. With, with, regardless of whether he was ultimately correct or not, there's no question and there's no serious argument here that he had a legitimate basis for believing that police misconduct had occurred. He conferred with his supervisors and his colleagues before writing the memo. Everyone agreed that there was a problem with the warrant. And they took his allegation so seriously that they released a defendant who had said guilty of that chance. But if true, if none of that were true, he could still file his complaint. Presumably it survives a motion to dismiss and it goes at least to summary judgment. And that's true in every case of a disagreement between a subordinate and a superior. That's true of every public employee government, um, excuse me, public employee speech case, period. Almost all of these cases go to summary judgment. They can't be dismissed at the pleading stage by and large because they require factual development. So all that, all that this per se rule does is add complexity and a need for greater factual development. It's not the magic bullet that the petitioner seemed to think it is. The Givehan case suggests the unworkability of drawing the First Amendment line as what's part of an employee's job. Conferences between the teacher and her principal taken the same level of generality as writing a disposition memorandum. But what about cases, putting aside the the clear-cut case where the employee's statement is either clearly correct or clearly incorrect, but what about the case where the objection to what the employee is doing is the manner of the speech. It's on a matter. It's on a matter of concern, but the the supervisor just thinks that it's being handled in a way that's ham-handed or indiscreet. Aren't they going to? Aren't these cases going to cause terrible 
uh, litigation problems? No, they won't, and they haven't. Um, if the employee, employer has a concern about the manner in which it's communicated, that is a valid employment concern. I mean, suppose Tobias had gone and had a big meeting with but the I'm, Sheriff's I'm Department in Barrett. The test is going to be whether <clears throat> the manner, which may be difficult to recreate, uh, caused how much of a disruption it caused to the operations of the office. These cases, you'd think that if there was that type of disruption and hindrance of the way public agencies were carrying out their missions by these kinds of cases which have been around for a long time, that you'd see citations to them in the petitioner's brief, the United States brief, and their silence on this point is both deafening and telling because, in fact, it has not been the problem that is being posited here, and this is not a new approach that we're talking about. But getting back to the Give Hand case, conferences between teachers and principals are a part of the teacher's job, and it's pure formalism to make the protected status of the Give Hand teacher speech turn on whether the employee manual says the teacher has to work to root out race discrimination. Or what if she was a part-time ombudsman who was charged to improve race relations in the school? Under their approach, you know, boom, it's not protected speech anymore, even though the underlying First Amendment value is exactly the same. It also makes it completely subject to manipulation by the employer in making everything a part of an employee's job in terms of reporting duties. Which the First Amendment value may be the same, but, but what is present is another value. And, and unless the person is willing to go public, in which case the, the balancing occurs, and assuming there's, there's no prohibition of it, that other value is a very significant one, the ability of, of public officials to run their offices. But here's the problem with going public. It's perverse to create an incentive for employees to go public, especially employees in sensitive position. In sensitive position. The First Amendment consequences here are especially grave because Ceballos had no realistic alternative channel for communication open to him. Had he gone to a blog, website, podcast, and so on, as petitioners say in the reply brief, or held a press conference and go to the Los Angeles Times and so on, he'd be fired. And he'd lose any First Amendment case that he brought. So what avenue does a prosecutor who wants what he to has, bring? The argument I think people are worried about against you is you have a case It's actually a wonderful example. Your client thinks that in the affidavit that the sheriffs gave supporting the warrant, they didn't tell the truth because they said that whoever was looking into it, you know, said there was a private driveway and that there were tire tracks, and there were no tire tracks, and it wasn't a private driveway. The other side says, yes, it was a long road, but sort of like a driveway, and the edge of, of, the, of the driveway was broken down, and that's what the te- sheriff's deputies were referring to. I found it a dispute on both sides. Well, you know now, if, if, in fact, he's being disciplined for that, the other side is telling you he has a lot of remedies. He has a variety of remedies. Go to the bar associations. Uh, many states have laws, statutes that protect people under these situations. And why suddenly go to a constitutional court to get the same relief, which will short-circuit all the other remedies? And if you do, there are going to be thousands of cases less good than yours, and they'll all run to to the constitutional court. All right, so now what's your reply? 
There is no baseline level of protection that is available by statute or civil service protections. If the Court recognizes that the speech involved here, exposing government misconduct and so on, is important for First Amendment purposes, as it has previously recognized, then, it's, then it needs to be a baseline level of First Amendment protection. And then if whistleblower statutes are passed that protect it beyond the baseline level, that's fine. I mean, not maligning whistleblower statutes. But there is no such level of protection that is guaranteed. For someone in his position, if the First Amendment does not protect his speech, it's just not protected. And, and I want to get back to you. I started to say why it's so important that the speech be protected. It's not just that the public needs to have a government of public servants, but the government needs to know how it's operating. How can government function efficiently and effectively if it does not possess the information it needs to make responsible choices? When an employment decision is actually made because the employee has made a bad judgment and he reached an unwarranted conclusion in his memo or the manner in which he conveyed it was terribly indiscreet, he publicized in front of the whole sheriff's department and embarrassed them, when that's an issue, then the employment can respond, and the courts will make quick, sh- short shrift of those cases, as they do now. Well, well that was my point earlier. They can't make short shrift of those cases because they're not going to be thrown out at the pleading stage. They're going to have to progress at least to summary judgment, probably in every case in which an employee is terminated, because now one of his defenses against termination is, you're violating my First Amendment rights. But, I mean, the Court needs to appreciate that for the, pu- the universe of public employee free speech cases, they're mostly decided at summary judgment. They aren't decided on the pleadings. That's already the case. And all that adding a job duty element to it is adds complexity and requires more factual development. It, there's a number of issues here. First of all, what counts as part of an employee's job? Does the speech have to be required by the job or merely related? to the job. How do you judge if the speech meets the test? You go by the job description, common practice. What if the employee's speech is not required by the job, but some independent ethical duty compelled him to if, come forward, as the case here? And, and also, what if Cases the involving those questions would have to go to the courts, I assume. But they'd be a small percentage of all the cases that would go to the courts if we adopt your position. I agree there'll still be some cases left that'll have to go to the courts to sort out these questions that you mentioned, but that's that's going to be a small percentage of the totality. Well, it's already a small percentage of the totality because cases of this type, which involve speech by a public employee while they're doing their job, however that is formulated, are already a small subset of the universe of public employees. Perhaps cases. because it's been unclear until this Court has spoken to the subject, and especially in light of the dicta in our prior cases, which says that he has to be speaking publicly. Uh, the reason for the, for, the, for the paucity of cases can be simply that the law was not clear and most people thought th- the, way, uh, the way your opponent in this case thinks. That's, that's incorrect. I mean, most of the circuits have addressed this question, and virtually all of them are, have sided with the Ninth Circuit and has, have refused to draw a bright-line rule when speech um, has come up as part of the job. And, the, and as Justice Scalia, you seem to be referring to the as-a-citizen phrase that the Court has used in its opinions, and I want to address that. No decision by this Court has ever turned on the as-a-citizen phrase, and it's always been used in conjunction with matter of public concern. The most that can be said is the phrase characterizes the facts of the cases in which the Court used it. The Court hasn't addressed whether speech is part of the job. The Court didn't say this guy had blue eyes. 
speech. It said he was speaking as a sca- that, that seemed to the court to be important to its decision. Speech, and, and I don't mean to suggest it has no meaning, but speech as a citizen means speech that one can readily imagine a concerned citizen engaging in. You can imagine a concerned citizen coming forward to report race discrimination in school. That's not the context in which this law developed. It developed originally, if you were a public employee, you did not have free speech rights as a citizen. As Justice Holmes said, you know, you might have the right to speak, but you don't have the right to be a policeman. So the as-a-citizen part didn't come out of happenstance. It was recognizing that when you are speaking as a citizen, juxtaposition to as an employee, (laughs) then you do have First Amendment rights. Right. If you look at the way it was used in Pickering, which, of course, is a different case, but in Pickering, the Court was emphasizing that public employees, like all citizens, have an interest in speaking on a matter of public concern. The Court in Connick suggested that if the prosecutor there had spoken to bring to light actual or potential wrongdoing or breach of public trust, her speech would have presumptively been protected. If she'd done that, she'd be speaking in the same capacity that Sabio spoke here. One can readily imagine a concerned citizen stepping forward to expose government misconduct. And it can be difficult to sort out in which capacity an employee is speaking, and sometimes an employee can speak in more than one capacity at once. If pickering balancing is done, is, uh, is there anything special about the situation where the employee's speech is part of the employee's job duties? Does the test apply differently in that situation? It does, because if the employer makes a judgment, as I said before, if the employer makes a judgment that the employee has carried out his job duties poorly, incompetently, insubordinately, and so on, that, that interest is it's either dispositive of the balance or it's nearly so. And it, so from that standpoint, the Court could put a gloss on the Pickering balance that explains or emphasizes that the employer's interest in controlling how jobs are performed prevails. Uh, but to get back for a moment to the I'm, I'm not sure I understood that answer. So in this situation, if the employer said that Mr. Sabayas was performing his job poorly, that would be enough to tip the balance in the employer's favor? If that was — here? If that were really the case, in, in a case like this, it would be clearly pretextual, because not only — not only was not on the basis that was actually offered, but the employer um, sided with him initially, and — released a defendant and said he had a legitimate basis for speaking and called a meeting with the Sheriff's Department and took all these steps to show that they actually sided with him. And only when the Sheriff's Department accused him of as acting like a public defender and said, we're going to get sued if you don't back us up, then the office changed its position and went against Sabaya. So in a case like this, it would clearly be protectual. In another case, however, it would not Presumably, there are cases where it would not be pretextual. So basically, the, the test, the pickering balancing is the same in this situation as it is in, let's say, the give-hand situation. Well, this case is almost identical to give-hand. The only, the only thing is that the court in give-hand didn't expressly opine on what capacity in which she was speaking, but it's clear that but a I, teacher I, speaking I, both capacities. I interrupt you? I thought you said that in, in this case, as distinct from give-hand, there would be cognizable employer interests uh, in incompetence, uh, the truth of what was said, the capacity to do the job without roiling the waters unduly and so on. And, and that, I take it, is, is not necessarily so in a, in a given situation, or is it? In, Maybe the um, employer has the same interest in each. I, 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 I think the employer would have the same 
interest in both cases. The question Gifhan was the fact that it was an internal report to the employer. Did that matter? Did that reduce its protection? The court said no. So the only thing that would take to make Gifhan exactly like this is to put it in the employee manual or make her an ombudsman. So it's clear. So there's not even room for argument that it was part no, of the in, job. No, but in given, if, if the employee's assigned duties were all done competently, but she had just gone off the deep end on, on racial balance or something, uh, the, the employer would not have had, if, if, so long as it was, a, as it was, a private communication like that, I don't know that the employer would have had an interest in, in saying, well, you're incompetent on the subject of racial balance, and therefore I, you know, I'm going to demote you or fire you. But in the case in which the employee is talking on the subject within the job description, then the employer has got, I thought you were saying, has got a direct interest in competence, truth, and so on. Yes, that's, okay. that's correct. That's right. Um, let me turn just for a second to getting back to the complexity here and the line drawing that has to be done. The petitioner's own hypotheticals underscore the arbitrariness and unworkability of their approach. And if you look in the reply brief at page 13, note 11, they cite as an example a county emergency room doctor who, and then they put, is not part of their norm- normal duties to sort of build it into the hypothetical would have a right, a First Amendment right, to come forward and talk about inefficiencies in a county emergency room, whereas the state health inspector who finds health code violations in nursing homes do not. The First Amendment value in those situations are the same, and if anything, it's greater for the county emergency, for the, for the, let's set this backwards, the county emergency room doctor who's talking about how the, how the county hospital is operating. There's no difference there, and it's a completely arbitrary line drawing. Suppose Ceballos had um, gone outside the chain of command. Suppose he'd reported to Garcetti that there was police misconduct. It's not clear where that position would, where their position would lead them. Now it's not part of his normal job duty to go talk to the DA. He's bypassed the chain of command. But it seems that they would say that, well, because it was not part of his normal job duty, it, then it would be protected? And if so, what message is that sending public employees about whether they should follow their employer's own rules about how you communicate in the workplace and what the chain of command is? Um, It doesn't make any sense to force public employees to go public, as that does more to increase disharmony and disruption in the workplace than having an employee like Ceballos who followed every rule and every order and instruction regarding how to handle the case and how to communicate within the workplace. Connick said that the First Amendment's primary aim is the full protection of speech upon issues of public concern, as well as the practical realities involved in the administration of a government office. The proposed rule is inconsistent with that primary aim. It doesn't do anyone any good to have U.S. attorneys and DAs blindsided by cover-ups in their office because their employees were afraid to come forward and tell their supervisors the bad news. Well, for that reason, they're, for, for that reason, they're not likely to, in most instances, they would not be uh, hostile to receiving that kind of information if it was provided to them. May I answer? Sir. Unfortunately, there's too much evidence, there's too much water under the bridge that shows that public employees who deliver 
bad news and are the unwelcome messenger do face retaliation in their workplaces. And here, Ceballos told his workplace, his supervisors, that police misconduct had occurred, and that was an unwelcome message, and he was retaliated against for that reason. Thank you, Ms. Robin Verdeer. Ms. Lee, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I think that's an important point, Justice Alito. I mean, in this case, it's, it's, it's exactly what happened. The supervisors took Mr. Ceballos' um, uh, um, um, assessments seriously, and um, the, the difference was, after they further thought about it, they didn't think, they didn't agree with the proper course of action for the district attorney's office, especially since there was a motion pending. Let's let the courts decide that. So if um, um, uh, uh, where uh, I think plaintiff suggesting that but for protecting speech that's required by the duties of employment, employees really would not have much of a, uh, a right or remedy if it turns out that the employer believed that maybe they weren't performing their jobs correctly. Or in our case, if the supervisor had considered the speech and said, you know what, you made a bad judgment call, um, and we don't think it's entitled to uh, a promotion, that shouldn't give the plaintiff a constitutional right to challenge that decision. If that, if, the, if Mr. Ceballos was in fact doing his job that was required of his job and he was doing it competently, his remedy is not the First Amendment. His remedy is not even, he doesn't even need a whistleblower statute for that. He could go through civil service, he could go through formal grievance procedure, and though, although state statutes on whistleblowers do vary. There is no state statute, in my understanding, that covers broadly than what the Ninth Circuit does here, which is — What do you respond to the argument that this has been the law in a number of circuits and the sky has not fallen? Well, the reason that job requires speech may not be — may not be — filed uh, or basis for First Amendment retaliation or the reason why we may not have seen that may simply be because public employees, understandably, do not believe they're exercising their First Amendment rights when they are simply performing the duties of employment, when they're speaking pursuant to their job duties or writing reports or memorandums uh, pursuant to their job duties. Just because there may not be the significant increase of uh, First Amendment litigation in the public employment context for purely job-required speech does not mean that this Court um, should not consider this issue. And I disagree with the representation that the facts in this case are identical to Givhan. This Court commented in that decision that Givhan was citizen speech. And I don't necessarily think that — and it was uh, — that um, um, — where our proposal, our approach, would add further complexity to First Amendment litigation in the employment context. It's certainly certainly not um, uh, a difficult uh, uh, analysis in this case. Thank you, Ms. Lee. The case is submitted.